0: that's good. All right. Don't be afraid to ask questions that you have, even if you think others might not have the same questions. It never hurts anybody to hear it more than once. And I've been repeating these same teachings for 40 years, and every day I learn something new about the same thing. So it's just the way it is. It's very subtle. Um, okay. So we're ready. Any, do I have any questions left over from last week? Oh, good old Tom. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I love having you in the class, Tom, because you always have a question. I know you do, but they're, they're good questions, so I'm Before happy. Before we that. get to uh-huh. deep into the Vritti question... Um, mm-hmm. Dive deep in the Vrittis, yes. okay. Uh-huh. Do Ritties have... Are Vrittis just confined to human beings, or are there Vritti, nature Vrittis <laughs> and things like that? Or is it us Vrittis? because of the ego, I think? Let's maybe you know, all I think you have to have a degree of ego development in order to develop an attachment. Right. Because if you're just... A, a, an animal, now, everything in creation is from the manifested state on its way to join the, the river on its way to the sea. And Swamiji commented once that... So I'm talking about Swami Kriyananda when I say Swamiji. Uh, Swami Kriyananda commented once that he sees all beings in creation, including the animals, just on the spectrum from identified with their material reality to identifying with their spirituality, and that he didn't—he doesn't really see any big distinction between people and animals. It's just a matter of degree. But from the point of view of spirituality, the difference between us and what we call lower species, is that they are actually less able to differentiate themselves as an ego and do not develop such a strong identity with the ego. And all of that identity with the ego and those strongs likes and dislikes acted on continually are what create vrittis. I always, I mean, I'm always hesitant because people people's opinions of their animals are often quite elevated, and uh, sometimes they don't agree with me. But I think that that is philosophically sound. And you know, you're, it's not that your puppy or your kitten or your parakeet can't have likes and dislikes, but he doesn't have the objective ego structure to build a life around them. You know, I mean, they can be pretty cunning sometimes, but not like human beings. You know, the way we just make everything run according to our desires. They'll do it in the moment, but they can't objectify and plan it out quite so much. Okay. There's a video on YouTube that was being passed around of some parrot in the zoo in Cincinnati or somewhere that has just a remarkable repertoire of sounds and different voices and... and uh, not non-verbal um, sounds in response to, you know, did you like it? mm mm-hmm, You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but the, the prompter just at, asks the animal questions and then the animal knows, is cued by the questions. And you just don't know. Seeing talking birds is extremely disconcerting when you start talking about ego development. But I don't think the bird knows what it's doing. It's just... It recognizes what it will, what it needs to get a seed. I don't think it's really can objectify it, but that was in the back of my mind, confusing the conversation at the moment. Okay, any other question? All right. Good evening. Um, so we are on Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. You know, I I was had a little trouble remembering exactly where we were. We're at six. We did go through number five. Okay. I, was, I looked at it, and I, I noticed that the, the last thing I read, but I can't, couldn't find it in the book. Okay, so we are at number six. So we were talking about the vrittis, which are the um, whirlpools of committed energy with the center point of some egoic-based self-definition or desire. And then Patanjali wants us to understand that these, these vrittis... Take certain forms, and everything is about the vrittis because, as we learned in a couple of sutras ago, union with God comes when all these vrittis are still. So, what he's he's he defines them in five ways, which actually bears a lot of deep meditation. So, last week we talked about the fact that they're painful and they're painless, in other words, not all vrittis are equal, some of them move us toward higher consciousness, and some of us pull some of them pulls away from higher consciousness. But anything that puts the ego at the center is not the same as God-realization. And we talked last week about how you know, being kind um, takes it expands our sense of identity and therefore begins to remove one of the obstacles to divine perception. But it's not being kind in itself that is the state of realization. It's the way it separates us from our ego identity with, that allows the realization to come. That's a very important distinction because, there, because what we're really having to remember over and over again, and this is really what makes Patanjali really different than a lot of other spiritual teachings, is that there are no prescribed behaviors. There's nothing external that is actually the goal of the practice insofar as he does prescribe any kind of external It's because in so doing we will shift our consciousness and then when our consciousness is shifted, we'll have what we want. I say that also because at certain... um, When we're talking especially about the chakras and it also relates to the vrittis here a couple of classes ago when I had them on the board, I was saying this. It's what's at the center of the vritti that needs to be dissolved. And sometimes people behave in a harmonious way but what's actually motivating them is some kind of fear at the center of the vritti. So even the behavior which looks like a positive behavior, like an ego-dissolving behavior, is actually ego-affirming because at the center of the vritti is, is, for example, fear. Um, I, I know that many people psychologically are caught that way. Fear of conflict, fear of expressing your real opinion, fear of standing up for yourself. And so you develop a whole personality that looks like a really nice personality, but it's actually um, deepening your delusion rather than freeing you from it. And that's why he makes the distinction here that it isn't the behavior, it's the dissolution of the um, ego identity that's important. And if one thinks of oneself as uh, vulnerable, um, uh, not lovable, uh, easily injured by harsh words by others, and, and that's really the center and the causative of all your behavior then you're really just reinforcing it. So it isn't what it looks like, it's what the consciousness actually is. And it's a very important distinction. doesn't mean you should go out and be awful. But uh, freedom is the goal. So then number six is, the vrittis are, after we've said first painful, painful and painless, the five classification of vrittis are, the first one is painful and painless, then after that, right and wrong conceptions of what is, imagination, sleep, and memory. All vrittis in stirring the waters of feeling distort the reality that is soul bliss. That was what I read last week. I remember that now. Okay. So we start out by the image that Swami often gives of the gas burner where the gas is all the same fuel but when you divide it up into the little jets, it all looks very different. Each of those little vrittis is a way of dividing things up. And he says, all vrittis are delusory. Even to have a right conception of truth may help lead us eventually to the truth itself. But the conception itself is not the truth any more than the mere conception of water will make our shirt wet. Okay? And now he's really trying to break down a mere intellectual understanding of these things and recognize that realization is different than the ability to articulate it cleverly. Okay, and then he walks on to say that meditation is the best way and to to banish our delusions. And, of course, we have the practice of Kriya, which dissolves these vrittis. Um... What what we're talking about in the practice of meditation, and this is one of the reasons why meditation, especially practice like Kriya, really is so good for us. This is what, um, in somewhere in autobiography, it says this. I think it's quoting uh, Shankaracharya. He says, Ritual will not dissolve delusion because rituals are not the opposite of delusions. And meaning, outward action is not the opposite of inner. Delusions. And so when we meditate and bring our consciousness to a, a, a calm focus and as much as possible detach ourselves from all the activities that normally define us in that calmness, then we have a point of contrast, you know, just even between a desire or an idea of something we want to do. You know, sometimes when we're not certain of the right path in something, the way we find out is to become calm enough inside that we can compare that vibration of attuned calmness with the vibration of whatever it is that we were wanting to do. But if we're always in motion and always being moved about and always outwardly engaged or thinking and talking and presenting our right and wrong concepts of things, we don't always have any real point of comparison, we just compare this restlessness to this restlessness and we decide what is painful and what is less painful or what we like and what we don't like. But we don't necessarily compare vrittis to stillness, which is what we're really looking to do. Um, And then Swamiji talks in here about, he's talking about the main delusions of money, of sexuality, of intoxication how when we're in a slightly elevated state, we can look at these delusions. One, of, one friend of mine, he used to spend a long time, has spent a long time in his spiritual life just contemplating, um, not, I mean, you have to do this carefully, but different possibilities in life, things that might attract him. And he, he tries to look at them very, uh, clearly and straight on and try to feel in them what they really have to give him. And that's what Swamiji is suggesting here. A salesman may approach you and tell you that you can make a killing on the market and you get really excited about thinking you're going to get all this money and you spend it in your mind and if you have this money you'll do this and you'll do that. But then if one sits very calmly in a state of meditation, one can, can perceive the difference... Between that, oh, I hope it happens, excitement, and the real calm state of satisfaction of the soul, and you again, you have a point of reference. Um, and then he he proposes, you know, just the uh, and he's writing this from a man's point of view, the possibility of an attractive woman who offers herself to you. Where will that really take you? You know, where will you be if you follow through on that desire? But you can't ask those questions if there's no calmness. Because otherwise you're, you just spin in them. And you can't ask those questions even in meditation if the thought of them deeply disturbs your, your calmness. One of my friends also used to practice um, facing difficult situations. Um, she used to have a particular fear about being thrown out of Ananda. And so she would play that one out in her mind really often. She would, she, there's no reason why she would be thrown out. It was probably a karmic memory but she would imagine being summoned to Swami's house. She would imagine, you know, accepting that she was going to go see him, knowing what might be coming. She would imagine herself walking down the walkway, opening the door, sitting with him, just because there was a vritti within her that was anxious from the past about that reality. I mean, many things have happened to all of us in past lives. So rather than just let that be a subconscious undercurrent afraid to be faced, And she said she did that for quite a long time, until, I mean, over a period of years, because often she could only get so far (laughs) before she just couldn't take it anymore and she'd have to run away. But she finally was able to completely accept the possibility and then plan her life beyond it. And that's, you know, that's a courageous way that we just face into this. And this was just a meditation practice. I, I remember telling some of you, I think it's actually relevant here, come to think of it. A number of years ago, when we used to go to India on our pilgrimages, one of those years, quite early on, um, we were at a temple outside of Delhi, and uh, the temporary pandala that they had built, which was five times as big as this room, so it was a gigantic thing, caught fire, which is very common um, for the pandalas to catch... Pandalas? Is that what it's called? To catch fire, because they're just made of sticks, and then there's all this electricity, and and they usually, as in this case, they burn hot and they burn fast and then they're finished. Well, we were, we were not in the main room. We were actually in a small stone room in the back having tea when the place caught fire. And it was about as, far, as farther away than the yoga studio is from here. We were, we were completely separated from it, but it was a big deal. And they came in and we all had to rush out and rush across. We didn't have any shoes on because we'd taken them off before we came onto the temple grounds. We had to run out of the huge courtyard area. Our group split in two, actually. And um, the group that I was with, let's see, we went straight. And we went straight through and then started climbing walls and going back and back. So we put a, a great deal of distance between ourselves and the fire really fast. The other group went to the side and they, unfortunately, were in fairly close proximity to the fire for quite some time. And so there's people, some of them got heat burns just because the heat was so intense from that. So it was a, it was a real exciting time. And my husband, David, and Durga's husband, Vidura, went you, the three of you, but somehow you ended up getting separated from them, right? You got early. Anyway, the three of them, instead of heading out the door with us thought, well, let's go see if we can help. So they turned back and went toward the fire. Chitambar, I guess, didn't spend much time with him because he separated out. Oh. Oh, by that point. Yeah, it was impressive. So David and Vidura, David being my husband, they went far enough back in that when they realized that they couldn't do anything in there. And I should say that everybody got out. No one was hurt. It was really an amazing moment. Um, They tried to go out the same way we had gone out. They couldn't get out that way because it was burning so fast. And they saw this, a a way to get through. And there was a big eight-foot fence. And they rushed, a stone fence, they rushed toward that fence. David has no idea how he got over it. There is no memory of going over the fence there was just suddenly, it was just a sheer fence, there was suddenly he was on the other side of the fence with this hand like this looking that way and this hand and this side of his face got burned because the fire was that close. Vidura was right behind him and Vidura heard somebody behind him, which David didn't hear. He turned back and there was a woman and her child and so he turned around to help them and by the time he turned back, he couldn't get to the fence anymore. Now to tell his story, he went, he looked around, he has, a, he has a very level head, he looked around and he realized that almost everything on the grounds was solid cement. And the only thing that was burning was the, was the straw and the wood of the pondola and, and so he saw the room we had all just rushed out of and realized it was solid cement. And he just went back inside of it and took this woman and this, uh, by now screaming woman and her child, because she didn't speak any English and he didn't speak any Hindi or whatever she spoke, so he dragged her back in there. And he just stayed there for the 20 minutes or so it took for the whole thing to burn out. But then the ground was too hot because ashes had fallen and we didn't have any shoes, so it was like almost an hour before he was able to come out of there. And in the meantime, we didn't know whether he was alive or dead. It was a very... Durga was pretty sure he was fine. She actually said he stopped to help somebody. That's where he is. She knew him well. Now David was separated from all of us and I only had about five minutes when I didn't know where he was and somebody handed me all his things because he had handed them to someone else when he went back in. So I had no idea where he was. No one had seen him and then somebody hands me his stuff. So there was a a full um, surge through me of the really real possibility. The, the flames were 50 feet high, and they burned people across the street. So it was a huge thing, fast but huge. So I, I had this whole surge go through me that, hmm, you know, I might leave her a widow. Very um, interesting. It was about five minutes, and then, oh, David's at the end of the street, and here he comes, and he was fine, but he was separated from Vidura, so, but that was a different story, and eventually Vidura came out. Now, the point of all this in terms of the vrittis is this. It was a big event. Everybody was majorly freaked out. So there was a lot for us as tour leaders to do to get everybody calmed down. I want to go home was the common mantra at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We'd only been in India like 36 hours, maybe. It was was really new. Um, So the next day... You know, David had a little bit of a burn, not that serious. He had to grow a beard because he couldn't shave, and it wasn't too bad. Um, but the next day, I realized that even though on a, he, he wasn't even really hurt, what to speak of dead, my, my physical body and a large part of my emotional self had committed to his dying. And I could feel that commitment. And my body and a lot of my emotions did not, had not changed. They experienced the trauma of him dying and it was still there. And I realized that this could be actually quite serious, that this is the kind of thing that... that I, would, I had been terribly frightened. Okay, now, the way you try to solve it is, oh, it didn't happen, it didn't happen, he's fine, he's fine. That's the way we normally respond, isn't it? Oh, wow, I dodged that bullet. But what I realized was what had been manifested in me and was still really there was the fear of the possibility that it could happen. Which is to say the mere fact that it hadn't had really done nothing to alleviate the fear. You see the difference? It's a very important difference because the fear, the fear is itself a vritti. There's the thought form. You know, I'm going to come to India with my husband. I'm going to leave without him. You know, something's going to happen. Or we're going to go out to a restaurant or he's going to go to work. You know, it's just the fear was there. And I experienced it solidly. So the next day, as it happened, we went to the Gandhi Memorial in Delhi. And we were meditating there. I I think I'd been there before. So I, just, I decided I had a serious issue here. So I sat down under a tree. Meditate. and It's interesting to me because there's a photograph of me there and I look very unusual. And I know why I looked unusual, because I was really on a quest. And I sat there and I did my best, given that it was only a visualization and not a real life experience. I did my best to go back to the moment when I thought he was dead, had been killed in the fire, and to go through the whole thing as if he had been so that I could say, all right, so this happens. It's not what I would have chosen, but it happens. And I just, I acted it all out. And you know, his parents were still living then. I, I imagined calling his parents, talking to his sister, talking to my family, making decisions about whether to cremate him in India and put his ashes in what city, what city would I put them in, how would we do it, visualizing the pilgrimage group, putting his ashes in the river, you know, with his parent, would that be okay with his parents? You know, how could I get the body home? I don't want to do that. You know, just everything. Then I went all the way home without him. I greeted this whole community by myself. You know, we had a ceremony here. Then I went to his closet and I started giving away his shirts. And when I was trying to decide which shirts would look good on which men, I decided I'd done enough. <laughs> but I really did. And at least the complete trauma of that experience went out of me. You know, if it all came... If I, if I was in exactly that same situation again, would I have released the fear enough not to you know, not, not to create that trauma again? I feel it would be presumptuous to say that was true. But it was a, it was a genuine experience about the difference between a vritti, where you're, it's still in there, and just the fact that externally you've managed to have it not happen. You see... It doesn't matter really what happens. What matters is, is the, what the ego has built up and how we're running our life on the basis of our ego's likes and dislikes because that determines everything. And when I asked Swamiji once, um, you know, what holds us to karma? Oh, this was a, in a different situation, but um, when we fear something, that's an unfinished karma, as simple as that. And that's really scary in itself, isn't it? Because think how many things we fear. And that, just, that, that tells us why we keep reincarnating. That tells us why we have difficulty meditating. That tells us why we're not self-realized. If we fear it, it's unfinished karma. That's why when Swamiji talks about, recently, he's talked to us about the dream he had where he was being burned at the stake. I've already referred to it once in these classes where he just dreamt that he was being burned at the stake and he was tied to the stake and, you know, the, the fuel was there and it was beginning to um, spark. And he was perfectly relaxed. Oh, he said, this will be painful for a short time and then it'll be over, I'll just be dead, no problem. And then when he was rescued before, instead of being burned at the stake, he had the same state of detachment and equanimity. In other words, it didn't, he wasn't afraid of it. He just wasn't afraid of it happening. That means that means that there's no subconscious, there's no vritti's. That's the only word for it, because when the vritti's are still, um, he's tranquil. What does it say here about just he, he tranquilly looks out at the whole it's world? Tranquilly. Yes, the sage abides tranquilly in his inner self. If there's no vritti's, if we have these fears, and that means that it's unlearned karma, then in a very real sense. What we fear, we're attracting to ourselves. Now, people become quite, um, how would you say, paranoid about this. And they, they go into a state where, because they're afraid of something, they never want to have it talked about because they're afraid if it's talked about, it'll bring it about. Not realizing that one of the ways their fear manifests is their fear of talking about it. So they become a little superstitious rather than actually affirmative. Okay, that's, that's a very subtle point. I don't want to go too far because it's a whole different subject. But the other side of it is you can, just, you can just depend on the fact that if you're afraid of it sooner or later, you're going to have to face it. So there's no point of being afraid of your fears manifesting because you know full well that they're going to manifest, because if you're afraid of it, it's unfinished karma. Now, does that mean that my child will be kicked in the head, that I'll be kicked in the head, that you know that I'll lose all my money? On one level, scary as it is, that's what it has to mean, because we have to be able to be completely tranquilly at rest. So you can't, deal with this on the level of the individual fears. And if a person does not have an expanded reality and a relationship with God and Guru in which to place that thought, it's better not even to bring it up. Because you bring that up to someone who has no context to deal with it, it would be cruel. It's much better to just commiserate you know, and try to be reasonable. But then then you will be dealing with people who have no idea where their fears or what they're really afraid of or where their fears come from, which is why we like having Ananda communities because we have a shared assumption about life and we have the possibility of helping each other. Others you can only help, as we've talked about in these classes, as much as they're willing. But now let's, let's take it from a different level. Um... I'm going to use a story that, again, some of you know, but it's absolutely apt for this situation. When I was very, very first married, after 10 years of being single, and I thought I had overcome a certain amount of what I would call impossible female emotions, which I have experienced, but I I have no enthusiasm for. And I found myself... Creating an emotional crisis within myself, theoretically, because of actions of my husband, but I was astute enough to realize that he had done nothing. I had just created an emotional thing out of nothing, which women are very talented at doing. At least, I mean, this I did out of nothing. We can certainly build a big fire with just a little fuel, that's for sure. And I watched myself do it, and I was appalled, and I was also terrified because it was the early, I was just been married for less than a year and I just didn't want to go down this road Uh, been there, done that not interested, but I watched it so again I tried to figure out how do you solve this how do I really work with this and so one thought is I had well I just closed my heart up, that's simple the whole problem here is just I'm too receptive and too intertwined so let's just cut some of that connectedness, how's that for a plan um could tell there was something really rotten about that, especially in the first year of marriage, if you solve your problems by just distancing yourself from your partner. That just like didn't seem like they had a great future. But what I had just been through didn't seem to have a great future either. So I tried the next one, which is, oh, he's a good man, you know, he'll gradually come into line with my idea of how he ought to behave, <laughs> which I assure you is not a good idea either even to think it, what to speak of, to implement the plans. Um, Swamiji once said, the problem with marriage is that he thinks she'll never change, and she does. And she thinks, oh, he'll change, and he doesn't. (laughs) So there we were. So then I tried to reassure myself that I could trust him, which is the word that everyone uses. I could trust him. And then I thought to myself, you know, how do I know? He's, he could hit a, a tough astrological period, you know. He could have buried karmas that are just going to explode into our life. I, I do. I mean, I, I respect him and I feel like I know him, but it just seemed like that was not a really secure place either, which is, in other words, I will control his behavior at all times and he will never do anything that will upset me and then I'll be fine. You can see there's certain flaws in that one. So then I really tried to think, what, what is the answer? And the answer was really very dynamic and it's informed my life ever since, not only in my marriage. Oh, I can trust God. But I can't trust God to never do anything that's going to be hard for me. Because uh, he never signed that contract. That was mine. That's one of those really big vritties. I love God, therefore he provides everything just the way I want it you know i'm a devotee now nothing hard's ever going to happen to me because god will protect me and that means protect my ego and my ideas of what i want that's a real bad one so i said but i trust god to t- to provide for me the means to face whatever difficulties he gives me and that i really could i could do because i do i just I don't relish the idea, but I, he will not. If he sends me a problem, he'll give me the means to solve it just the way it is. Or to face it, or to live through it. Solve it doesn't mean to make it go away, but to deal with it. So, therefore, why not just open your heart completely to the whole world? Because what have you got to lose? You're not really trusting anybody anyway. Swamiji. Once uh, he, w- he picked up a hitchhiker, and the hitchhiker gave him a real sad, luck, ha- hard luck story. And Swamiji thought about it and thought, you know, either it's true, in which case I really must help him, or it's not true. No, he said, maybe it's not true, you know, and then I don't want to support him in his, his falseness. But if it is true, I would feel very, really terrible for not helping him. So we decided to help him. And the man said, I'll pay you back. You can trust me to pay you back. Swami so said, oh, he said, I don't trust you to pay me back. <laughs> he said, I trust God to pay me back. And then he just gave it away with the knowledge that if I'm doing the right thing, then God will support me. And so, therefore, you're not always looking to control other people's behavior. Your life is just surrendered. I mean, that's really undoing the vrittis. And that's just putting yourself right where you need to be in the direction you're trying to go and getting rid of all those fears. And it's, it's solving... Haridas used to call that. He called it spy dog. That was his acronym. Solving problems in the direction of God. Instead of solving them in the direction of psychology or fairness or boundaries or all of these different things, you solve them all in the direction of God. Let's see what the big issue is here. The big issue is that I cannot... Make the world behave according to the way I want it to behave, and even the people closest to me. I mean, maybe he'll always be a good man and then he'll step off a curb and get hit by a bus. You know, you cannot make the world do what you want it to do. The only thing you can control is yourself in relation to the divine. So, this person that we're talking about who has, I mean, parents, I don't have children of my own. But I recognize from past lives, been there, done that, how that is. And if, you're, if you have a fear, for whatever reason, for the welfare of your child, we do not have rational discussions about that. I mean, a parent who can actually have rational discussions about their child is one in a million. So don't even think about it. You know, you just try to work with that and reassure as much as possible. And after that... The only answer is trust God, and if that is not an answer, then you just almost have to be silent. I, you can say then things like, I wish you had more faith, because really the only answer is to trust God. <laughs> but if it's not satisfactory, better to keep it to yourself. And yeah, be sure it'll come. you can be sure it'll, it'll come in one form or another, because it's a vritti, and it has to be dissolved because the river is going to go to the sea, and the only way the river is going to get to the sea is if all the vrittis are dissolved. These are very, 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 very challenging teachings. So you don't feel like you've got to be able to just put both arms around and wrap yourself around this one, and don't even pretend that you have. But try to look at it straight on, and, and, t- and nibble at the edges as much as you can. And then, as much as possible, as we're saying here, meditation is the best way to banish delusion. Meditation, devotion, relationship to a higher reality, is is the only way to do this. Because only when we have the perspective of of a higher reality, can we actually dissolve these. In that, in other words, when the when the force of the river moving toward the sea becomes strong enough, then the vrittis will go in, just be dissolved like the river sucks in the whirlpools, as we've talked about all along. Okay? Questions or thoughts on that? Yes, um, Lilovati. We passed the microphone around because there, we have a, a very big audience on the Internet, and if we don't do that, then they can't be heard. Okay, that's why I was concerned for a minute there. Yes, go ahead. So I'm still pondering what you said about um, when you thought, David had died. Was dead. Uh And the process that you went through. Right. And so that made me think of all the things that I'm attached to. Mm -hmm. You know, like my daughters, Mm -hmm. uh, money, being destitute, uh, losing my health. Mm -hmm. Would you recommend doing that, what you did? And just, you know... In so far as you can. Swamiji suggests we build a bonfire every night mentally and toss all our attachments into it. There's a joke about that, though, because this woman uh, was attached to her house and every night she threw her, her house into the fire and then her house burnt down. <laughs> so Swami said, I said, to toss your attachment to the house into the fire. <laughs> But yes, except be realistic. You can't, you, you know, you can't become what the Catholics call uh, you can't fall prey to what the Catholics call overscrupulosity, where you're just torturing yourself, trying to become something that's not really your next step. You know? but yes, in as much as it's possible, I had a friend uh, when her son was growing up. I had still have the friend. Uh, her son was growing up, and he was transitioning from being a a boy into a young man. And she came to me, and she would consult with me sometimes because not being the mother, I sometimes had a more objective perspective. He's planning to go on a co-ed overnight to sleep on the beach. I just really don't think that's appropriate at his age. I said, you know, it's a different generation. She came back the next day. He's been the one planning and instigating the whole party, she said. <laughs> I said, you know, it's just like uh, you have to... And then she, and then she talked about, um, you know, just the necessity. And she just started really conscientiously. She'd done all along. He's not my son. He's yours, Divine Mother. I'm going to do my best, but he belongs to you. She tried to solve the problem in the direction of God. To say that she's not attached, it's not true. She's, you know, it's very hard for a mother to sever her heart from her son. But she tries, and she directs herself that way as much as is possible. But it's, it's too high a mountain to climb, um, certainly in one leap. I was just struck by your example of how thorough it was, you know, with, you know, wearing to... shirts. Yeah, I was actually shirts. trying to find one for Lee Starkey, trying to think what color was best for him. David, before we all wore blue, he had such a gorgeous wardrobe. It was really a big issue his shirts. <laughs> I mean, it really was. He had such beautiful shirts. I knew that all the men in the community would be standing outside the door to have a memento of him. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, it, exactly right. Because every aspect of it is part of it. I mean. I don't do that as a rule. I don't sit around and imagine things like that as a rule. But when it feels relevant, I try. You know, because sufficient, (laughs) bad enough, I've had to live through this incarnation with all these attachments. How many more lifetimes do I want to live with them? It really scares me sometimes. I said to Swamiji, sometimes I wonder if the degree of f- freedom that I sometimes feel, which by me, no means is that notable, I want to add, but it's greater than it was, is just the fact that I'm older now and I just have life experience. And I, I became a little nervous that when I'm back in a younger body again that I'll just be the same dum-dum that I was then and that the, the detachment of age is, a, is not of the soul. And when I asked Swami that question, he did not answer me directly. He said, and he, this was in a different context, fear is, is karmic lessons that still have to be faced. He said, what draws you back to reincarnation is um, regret or longing. And so that has also been a criteria that I've used. If you deeply regret something, you will have to, you will have to do it again. And try to do it right. So you need to surrender your own. Vritti. It's a vritti, you see. Oh, if I'd only done it differently, the result would have been different. If I only hadn't been so foolish, it wouldn't have happened. If I only had a chance, I would have stayed in school. If I'd only done this, I would have gone to medical college. You know, regret, regret. We have regret in a thousand ways, and every one of those is a vritti. It's an egoic idea here, and those are painful vritti's. And Then we have longing in the same sort of thing. Regret and longing is what, oh, I I was so beautiful there, I want to go back. You know, I long for a perfect romantic relationship. You know, if only I didn't have such fat hips, if I had skinny hips like all the other girls do, then I could have worn those. No, don't underestimate it. Every time those thoughts cross your mind, you're building, you're building vrittis. I mean, you really have to ask yourself, Every time is this worth is this worth another incarnation? You know, cuz that's that's what you're doing and sometimes you have to just honestly say yes. <laughs> yes. You just have to say it that it's just not it's not a battle it's not even on, it's not even on the dance card yet. You know, this is just the given. It's just going to play. That one's going to play out a whole lot more. And don't worry about it. Just love God. Everything else will solve itself. That's why people get too over into overscrupulosity. But I think it's, I think it's more energizing to be humble and realistic than it is to think that you have to affirm a kind of monstrous yogic power that you don't really have. Just, well, Lord, here we are. We have a lot of work to do, but we'll do it. And just affirm your determination rather than your freedom, if you don't really have the freedom, if it's too far a stretch. So I feel a mother and her daughters, maybe start with something else. You know, (laughs) nibble around the edges of it. (laughs) Yeah, start when, practice when it's easier. (laughs) All right, let's take a short break. Okay. I, I was curious, thinking in the break, um, what's the difference between, or I guess, how should we treat differently a fear that seems, you know, very obvious, as, as in, you know, a loved one dying or something like that. B- when you think about it, but it's not something you fear all the time. You know, how there are certain fears that you think about happening over and over. They sort of run through in your mind, and then there are fears that, when they're brought up, like, oh yeah, of course I don't want that to happen. But it's not something you think about unless it's brought up. Am I making sense? You're making sense, and it's a little bit of the same question that was asking, which is, you know, where do I begin? And I I don't think you want to go rooting around in the dark. There's one begins by introspection one begins by becoming aware of one's reactions to situations one i sometimes you pay i find you pay attention in meditation to what's interrupting your meditation and often that's going to tell you where the where the present battle lines are being drawn sometimes you learn as much from what's keeping you from meditating you know you find yourself you know re um Reliving an argument, uh, running out on a fantasy, either positive or negative, um, lusting after or hating somebody—you know—just all these different things that'll come up. And you'll find that when you're trying to hold your mind steady, those are the ones that are grabbing you. So you can start working with those. It's too much to ask for us to, you know, just take on everything. That makes you crazy. That's the overscrupulosity where you're just always paranoid like this, just take it for granted that there's that you're going to have a lot of karmic events in the course of your life. That's why that whole story I was telling you about dealing with the early part of my marriage is just like, um, make your relationship with God and put all your trust in God, and then the details take care of themselves, because if that relationship is solid, that's where you'll go. And you don't have to really worry about the individual fears. See, because a lot of it is... I mean, this business of visualizing what you're afraid of is an iffy proposition unless you really feel drawn to do it. When I had that experience with David, I really had to do it. When I was in that emotional state, it was really the right thing to do. Where is the solution? I've got to go all the way to the end point of this. But to just... And my friend, because of who she is, she could conjure up a major fear for herself and try to live through it. And one of my yogi friends, he conjured up desires and systematically, just as Swami said, just tried to put them in front of his consciousness and see how they measured, how they stacked up against who he wanted to be. But you have to really feel inwardly guided to do this. You can't just take it on as, well, that'd be fun, because you can just get very, very confused. And, and also there's a very simple fact. If you're projecting out... See, some fears are like deep-rooted and you know that this is a past-life trauma that that's, you're projecting into the present. And those you can kind of investigate. If it's the kind of random fear that anybody would be afraid of, um, you just have to, you have to use common sense is what I'm really trying to say. And we were having a conversation during the break exactly about this um, describe to me that sort of all—all all the specific fears come under certain categories. People say things like, "I have abandonment issues," you know, things like that, or, you know, "I'm afraid of loss" or "afraid of injury." And it's kind of nice if everything does. When I have tried to work my way through dilemmas like that, are more like that. I I meditate on the situation to the degree that I can with equanimity, and I try to think. And the question I always ask is, what is it that frightens me? What am I afraid of? And There's obvious answers. Oh, the person I love will die, which is what you just said. Okay, why does that frighten me? Oh, because then I would be left alone. Okay, why does that frighten me? And you don't just have a... This is not like a a, a rational plate platonic dialogue at all. It's really sitting deeply in your in your heart with, with God and Guru and asking yourself, why does that make me afraid? What does that mean to me? And, and if it takes a long, long time to answer those questions, let it take a long time. I don't just mean five minutes. I mean five years. What am I really afraid of here? And then you just kind of keep melting through those layers with God's company so that you're not just scaring yourself to death, but you're actually practicing, just as I was talking about with David, practicing, but in the presence of God, and having that relationship as being what you're dealing with. And uh, you can actually work through a solid amount of karma that way. At least you can not be... You know, there's certain things that haunt me a lot. I. I I think about difficult cataclysmic times coming, um, partly because Swamiji talks about it a lot, Master talked about it, and because if I accidentally hear any of the news, I'm scared to death about the state of the world. But I I practice it, you know, I think about how we would relate from this temple and who would come and how we would work with it because it frightens me. And I feel the fear rising in me, so I try to just bring... God's light into it in a practical thought because it asserts itself. Um, I think that that's really all there is on that. Yeah, it's a real question. See, these are all the vrittis. Oh, We're talking about all the negative vrittis tonight, but the desire filled vrittis, the, the this will be fun vrittis, are also important. Okay, I'll go on if there's no more to ask. These are very important questions. I mean, this is the whole story of vrittis, so. However we're talking about them, we're talking about them. Um, Patanjali says that there's two kinds of vrittis, right and wrong conceptions. And so some of our vrittis are are based on a true understanding of spiritual life. And this was essentially Arthur's question at one point. You know, it, what about the desire for God? That's also a vritti. But that's a right conception vritti. And right conception vrittis are naturally going to diminish the hold of the ego. And so since we're going to have lots of vrittis anyway, it's better to try to develop a a strong commitment to those concepts which are are going to lead us to freedom. Oh, I know what I was, there was one more thought that I wanted to say, which was, uh, no, I just lost it again. Let me just find it. No, it was before that. It was left over from the other. Just let me, give me just a second here and I'll see if I can find it. Oh, I know what it was. You see, what the vrittis do is they compel us in certain actions. If you think of it like the river that's trying to go to the sea and the whirlpool has got a grip on some of your energy, when, the, when you have made the decision to go to the ocean, but that whirlpool is still there, then a whole lot of you is going to go over here. I I see that in people sometimes, in myself too. You know, you set a clear intention for yourself and you actually think you're going toward it, but somehow or another you end up over here. I mean, it'll happen to me because I work at home. Sometimes I'll make a decision to come downstairs from my office for some reason, and then I'll lose track of that reason, but when I'm down there I'll see other reasons. And suddenly I just find myself someplace I never intended to go. All these different whirlpools of energy just sucked me away. That's the disadvantage of working at home because there's so much else going on around you. But it happens just in our life. We we just get drawn because we are compelled by those pre-commitments of egocentric energy in certain directions. And what we want is not to be compelled... And I know I've talked about this in here before. So it's not a question of, I don't want to marry, I don't want to have children, I don't want to ever have to face the loss of a spouse again, I don't want this, I don't want that. No, no, no. Because then you, you'll, you'll also still be compelled because aversion is not freedom. Aversion is not a bad start toward freedom sometimes, but it's still not freedom. What you really want is you want to rest tranquilly in the self. And you rest tranquilly in the self, and then you're not compelled. And then whatever God wants of you, you just do it because it's all the same to you. You have no vrittis. That's what we're really working with. Now, in the meantime, right concepts are better than wrong concepts. So rather than just saying it doesn't make any difference, I think I'll just, you know, I won't meditate, I'll just, you know, overeat in the wrong ways, I'll go out drinking with my buddies. Those are wrong concepts. They're wrong concepts because they lead you in directions that take you farther away from where you want to go. Right concepts are, I come, to, I come to satsang every Sunday. I do my kriyas regularly. I gather with my spiritual family when I can. I listen to uplifting music. None of those things in themselves are freedom, but those are right concepts because those concepts will move you in the direction you want to go. And that, that was the question that um, Arthur asked, and Patanjali asked, answers it. There are five kind of rittis, right and wrong concepts. So right concepts are self-evident. And he, he tells us himself. He answers that question himself. They're not all equal. Some are right, some are wrong. All of them eventually have to be dissolved. But in the meantime, your right concepts are better richies to build. So don't, we don't have to worry about it. It's an intellectual game you get caught in, but still, everybody gets caught in it. Many people do. You're not the first person to ask that question because it just happens. The next one he says is Imagination. It's mean, so fascinating. Here are five. Now we come to imagination, sleep, and memory. I mean, painful, painless, right and wrong concepts, that's pretty obvious. But next comes imagination is a vritti, and Swami describes it. It's either helpful or harmful, depending on whether we use it to see possibilities where a practical view of reality gives no answer, or whether we seek rest in pleasant but unrealistic dreams of reality that might have been. Now, um, I asked Swamiji once what the secret of prosperity was, and his answer to me was creativity. And creativity is the capacity, as he put it very simply, if one thing doesn't work, you try something else. And if that doesn't work, you try something else. And if that doesn't work, you try something else. And you just keep innovating and shifting until you finally find whatever it is that's really going to work. Now, Swamiji puts it here, imagination is helpful if it allows you to see possibilities where the possibilities are not obvious. And what that does for us is that allows us to keep expanding our sense of what we might be able to do. It allows us... It's such a simple, interesting phrase, you see, but so often people's energy stops. Depression sets in. Hopelessness overtakes them. Lack of energy, lack of faith... And all of those factors can happen if you don't have the right kind of imagination. Because if you have an imagination that leads to creative, positive creative solutions, then that's a very positive expression of it. At the same time, and, and these are, this is why Patanjali bothers to list it, when you really stop and contemplate it, imagination is really fundamental to having a successful life because if you can't keep finding a creative way to renew the situation i today i was you know it's it's like everything is always there it's a it's a thoughts are not individual they're universally rooted and we just tune into them okay we've lived in our community now since 1986 the whole 89 89 Sorry, I've lived in Palo Alto since 1986 thank you okay big difference but anyway 1989 and we've been living on that piece of property there. And the whole area around us just keeps changing and changing and changing. And right now they've cleared out the whole shopping center and they're building all these zillions of houses, of condos there. And now they're, I read, you know, the further plans. And it really hit me when, we, when David and I said to each other whether the, the milk pail is going to be um, removed. And, oh, the milk pail. We've been shopping at the milk pill for as long as we've been here at such a nice place. And all of a sudden, my mind was saying, I don't like it when things change. Why don't they just leave them alone and just leave them the way they've always been? Does that sound familiar? Whoa. I watched my 95-year-old uncle do that. Swore I never would. And there it was. Now I didn't actually say it, but it was, it was real close because thoughts are universal. And I was just about to say, why do they mess with this world? Why don't they keep it the way I want it? But that's exactly true. You feel it hovering just right here, right? Because that's, that's, you know, it's very easy for your life to just shut down. And, I mean, if you don't have the imagination to think, well, here are all the positive things. If you can't just take a situation and keep thinking of possibilities when the possibilities are not obvious. You see how key that is to having a successful life? To be creative doesn't necessarily mean that you can paint or draw. It just means that you can take the substance of what is and then you can see possibilities when those possibilities are not obvious. Oh, look, I'm very old. I have to just sit by this window all day. You need imagination of the right kind to be able to turn that into a positive life or else you just start wasting a whole bunch of time or worse. We'd never stand still. We either go forward or backward. But then the wrong kind of imagination is when people spend all their time just dreaming unrealistically about what they hope could happen. Of course, you know, every young person imagines that what do you want to be when you get older rich right and you just think you're going to be the one who's going to be rich going to be the the star the this the that swamiji is fond not fond of quoting but he sometimes quotes a survey that he read where people in their 40s were asked what was the happiest time of your life and a surprising number said their senior high school prom which is like That's really unnerving. But (laughs) (laughs) the reason for that would be because then everything was about possibilities at that point. Even through your 20s, even into your 30s, you think it's about to turn around by your 40s, you you have a stronger sense of where this life is and isn't going. And then you use your imagination to look back, to think, oh, how nice it was then, how nice it would be if, whole incarnations go by in which the quality of imagination wrongly used just keeps you nowhere until we develop the quality of imagination rightly used. That's why Patanjali lists it out like that. Yeah, it's quite something. Then comes sleep. Do we have any questions about that? Okay. (laughs) What is there to say? When you read You know, it's very interesting to me how all of Swami's writings weave together. Patanjali is not for sissies. You can quit the class, you know. (laughs) Um, The book, Art is a Hidden Message, or whatever. Is that what it's called? Creativity is a Path to Self-Realization. They keep changing the names of these things. But when I first really read that book to teach it, it's a class on on our internet site now, I was amazed because I really began to see that uh, Swamiji essentially said that you you know you must be, almost said, you have to be a creative artist before you can be God-realized. So you have to be creative to be spiritual. To be to be spiritual. And he almost said you have to be a creative artist. But you have to be creative to be spiritual because you have to always see what's in front of you and then you have to understand how you can create a more expanded reality from it. In other words, we, you know, it's, it's a very high-energy project that we're on. And, it's not, and I always say to anybody who's anywhere listening to these teachings, obviously you are a very creative person because most of the planet can't imagine this way of life. And nothing, you know, in our society really supports it at all. So if, in the face of the extraordinary materialistic commitment of this planet, it has occurred to you even a little bit that maybe there's another way to live, then you already qualify as an enormously creative person with a splendid imagination. And I mean that seriously. So you don't have to think that just because, you you know, you're not filled with new ideas for things that you're not imaginative, you're, you're creating a life, a very unusual life. Okay? So on from imagination to sleep. Sleep is both a necessary energy restorer and a temptation to sluggishness, to tamoguna, guna, the darkening quality, a slothful tendency of the mind that merely hopes one one's difficulties will dissolve of themselves in time. Oh, it's so pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> I'll just go eat some chocolate and then I'll feel better. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it's a vritti. He calls it sleep, but it's the the thought for that's exactly the thought form that I don't have to put out energy, I can just not put out energy, and then somehow this will work itself out. And it's a very, very, very deep vritti within us when we talk about c- conscious, subconscious, superconscious. That's the whole argument, the whole subconscious reality that just says less energy feels better, so let me put out less energy. And the superconscious reality that says, no, I think raising your energy and expanding your awareness is the way to be free. But the temptation to think that lower energy will give us something that we want, whether we manifest that by sleep, or by drugs, or by television, or by chocolate, or whatever it is that just says... If I if I just go down a little bit, rather than up, everything will be better, and that's just a very very deep delusion, and the ego the ego clings to that. S- Superconscious is ever expanding energy, subconscious is um, declining energy, and the conscious mind is the battle of Kurukshetra where the two forces fight themselves out. And Swamiji tells us not to sleep too much. Sleep is uh, Counterfeit samadhi, is what Master said. (laughs) You lose consciousness of the body, but you're not. It's counterfeit. It's not really genuine. I mean, what I observe in Swami Kriyananda is that he does not enjoy diminishing his consciousness. You know, where almost everyone else that I know, and I will put myself in this, I like to take a low-energy alternative. It's not this one we won't go to sleep or from time to time, read a book, although he doesn't read very much anymore. But just, oh, I I know what won't feel good, is I'll lower my my vibration, I'll lower my awareness, that that will make me feel good. That's the vritti that he calls sleep here. Literal sleep and the diminishing of awareness. So we have to, just constantly, we have to develop the right kind of imagination, we have to fix our concepts of things, And we have to resist the vritti that tells us that lower energy is really going to solve anything, whatever the problem is. One of my friends who was really, really an Olympic-class sleeper is the only way I would call him. He could just, when he didn't want to face something, he could sleep like nobody's business. And when we all got on the spiritual path together, he was a friend from before the path, and we all found these teachings together. He would joke when he found that there was... Uh, Three States of Consciousness, Sleep, Wakefulness, and Enlightenment. He said, well, I have learned one of them. (laughs) But in him it was exactly that. It was, oh, I just don't want... Whenever he had anything he didn't want to face, he would just... He he would fall asleep and then he could sleep just a stunning amount of time. (laughs) I mean, nobody else I knew even could. Okay. So then... Well, the laundry isn't. No, not wanting to do the laundry is uh, a manifestation of the same thing, though. Anything where we think that if I avoid it and don't do it, that will be more satisfying than if I face it and do it. And it's actually fighting the small battles are often a good idea. Although sometimes the small battles are a way of avoiding the thing you're really supposed to do, so you have to really sort this whole thing out. As as someone said about, since I stay home and do writing these days, someone said, thank God for writing deadlines, otherwise I'd never get my housework done. (laughs) Which is anything but the main job, even that which I would never touch. When I find myself ironing in the middle of the day, I realize, (gasps) I think I'm being productive, but I think I'm really, really not. Okay. Okay. So then the last one is memory. And this he says, memory can make us dream in vain of a vanished past. On the other hand, a clear memory can give us clues to nagging present problems that seem to defy a solution. In the highest sense, as we shall see later, memory is also that which brings to mind the truth that we are sons of God. And that kind of memory is called smriti, which is a wonderful word. Smriti means divine memory. And that when Smriti is awakened, all of a sudden, we, we remember. We remember who we really are, just like if we'd had amnesia, which we do. If you have amnesia and you think that you're a car mechanic and you're really the owner of the company, when the memory comes back, you realize that your position here is far different than you thought it was. And so here we are, we've forgotten. Smriti has been obscured by all these other vrittis, Smriti vritti. And when Smriti awakens, then we suddenly remember what our true nature is, and then we're not trapped so much anymore. We remember it not just as a, an idea on the pages of a book, but we really feel it in our hearts. And it gives us you know, confidence and courage in a way that nothing else can. So again, like imagination, memory is the same. Um, everything gets colored by memory And we we can spend all our time thinking that if only we could go back, if only things were the way, this way, or that way. Or if we have a very clear memory of what life's experiences are really like. I remember a friend of mine, also another friend, she said that when she was 10 years old, her family was not, her childhood was not entirely happy. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't entirely happy. And she was conscious at the age of 10 that childhood was overrated. And even though she didn't, she didn't have yet know that she was a yogi in this path, but it was some sort of a, a memory like that. And she would say to herself as a child, don't forget what this is really like. <laughs> so I, and she was, as she got older and got on the path, she realized that she was talking to her soul. Don't get sucked in. Remember what this experience is really like. I joke because um, I mentioned the India pilgrimages here several times, and four of us led those tours about a dozen times over a course of 20 years. It was a golden era. It was so much fun, but now it's over. And my husband David and Asha, me, Durga and Vidura, the four of us would do it. We became very good friends, and we were, we were very... We had a real dance the way we led that tour. It was great. And everybody had different roles. Um... My job was to remember the things that happened because I have a very sharp memory and I can really, I usually remember things accurately, not always, but usually. Because what would happen is that Durga and Vidura, and I absolutely love and admire them, envy them for this. They enjoy everything. And even if it was a little wonky in the moment, they just kind of blot out the wonky part and all they remember is what's good. They just have a totally positive memory. It's fabulous. They love everyone, they love everything, everybody loves them, they just, everything is positive to them. So, and my husband just lives in the moment and if it happened a couple of weeks ago, it's gone as far as he's concerned. (laughs) So, um, we would plan this tour from, sometimes we would only go every other year, so then we'd start making plans oh, we should go to that temple. Remember how wonderful it was? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> and I would say, remember, it was 106 degrees. There were nothing but mosquitoes. Do you remember it took us four hours to get there? Do you remember that it was not at all inspiring? Do you remember any of that? You know. And I would have to just be the voice of memory to sort of say... Oh, yeah, yeah. remember the driver said it would take us two hours. It actually took four and a half. Do you remember all of that? They said the roads were good. The roads were terrible. Do you remember all of that? No, I just remember it was so pretty when we got there. (laughs) No. On one hand, it was really good. But on the other hand, it didn't hurt to have a little realism about it. I wasn't being negative. I was just being factual in that particular case. It's e- Sometimes it's easier to understand the present if we understand the past. That's not exactly a relevant example, but if we can just sort of be, have an honest awareness of what our own experience is and learn from it, it's not helpful to be negative about our memories. Oh, that was really awful. I'm so I don't ever want to do that again. That doesn't help anything. And if you're really going to have if you're going to tilt one way or another, I think you should be like my friends and just remember the positive side of things. But the ideal thing, where you yourself are concerned, is to be aware of what your experiences actually are and, and know that, you know, this works for me, this doesn't work for me. That was a really positive experience. No, I think it's a little more than I can handle. Oh, no wonder I feel this way because all of these things are accumulating in me. To have just an awareness of awareness is actually the word, of what has really happened to us instead of just being oblivious. Why is she mad at me? You know, we've been behaving in a completely inappropriate, annoying way for the last 12 years, and now somebody gets mad at me. Why are they mad at me? What have I done? It helps to have a clear memory of what the, a clear objective, humble memory of what the experiences have actually been because then life makes more sense in the present. Because we can't always remember our past lives, but if we can remember at least a little bit of the kind of energy we put out and then see the result of it, if we can hear our actual tone of voice and recognize that we were off-center and that it brought this result or recognize that we were truly kind and detached and it brought this result. But if we can't keep at least some awareness of who we really are... and You know, I have, I do have a good memory and I really don't know exactly why... But once I was teaching, when I very first started teaching before we were here, I was still living at a village, and I started on the cycle where we had a center in San Francisco, Palo Alto, and Sacramento. And for a, a period of time, I would go out on Monday morning, and I would teach in Sacramento, San Francisco, and Palo Alto Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I would teach the same subject. But as you see, it's all very extemporaneous, and it was the same then. And after I finished the first week of classes and I was going into the second one, I realized, you know, I had no outline really because something different had happened in every city. And I I just became like, oh dear, how do I pick this up again? And I said to Swamiji, because he used to do that. He used to teach six nights a week the same classes and sequential classes, series. How do you remember? Oh, he said, just by concentrating completely in the moment. Oh, okay. Well, now that that's settled, it won't be a problem, will it? But actually, it was—it's been very interesting because, in fact, I do concentrate completely when I'm doing something like this. At least there's not—and I found that as soon as I stood back, as soon as I went back in, and I was looking at those people, came back to me. I could—I could feel and remember what had happened, and—and and then it just—it did just take care of itself because, in fact, I was. But Swamiji. There's a story I tell in my book of Padma. They were doing some complicated real estate tra- transaction. And at some point, a phone number was on a piece of paper. And Swami just glanced at that for a moment and before she put it away. Three hours later, Swami said, well, let's call that man. And then he just had the phone. And Padma said, let me look it up, the phone number. He said, oh, no. And he just said it. And that was when she said, how, how could you remember that? He said, well, I concentrated completely when I looked at it. And that's saying that he's concentrating completely all the time. So that kind, that's, that's the memory that we have. You know what that's called? That's living in the now. Because what causes us not to concentrate completely is because we're not really here. We're somewhere else while, the, while here is happening. And so you see how, how interesting it is how all the things come together. And so all he says is imagination, memory... And then when you really start parsing it apart, you see, oh yeah, these really are the key elements. Because if I can work with all of these key elements, then everything else comes up underneath it. He's the the ultimate uh, compressor (laughs) of these truths. Okay, any questions or thoughts before we let it go for the night? All right, thank you all very much. So we almost made it through number six, but not quite. Almost, but not quite. So we'll probably also get to number seven, which is one of my favorites. Right understanding comes from direct perception, inference, and valid authority. That's fun. Okay, guys. That's it. Good night.